HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is sponsored by Cane Vineyard and Winery. For more information, go to cane5.com. Is milk the perfect food from nature? We'll talk about that and a lot more on A Taste of the Past. Hi, I'm Linda Palaccio, and you are listening to A Taste of the Past here on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, where every week I bring you a journey on a journey through culinary history. And if you like what you hear, you know, you can become a member of Heritage Radio Network. You can go to our site. I believe our beta is up on our main page, and you can donate. You can become a member. Keep us alive. Keep us on the air. Well, today, as I said, we're going to talk about milk. Is milk really nature's perfect food? And how did this whole homogenization process come about and the big business of putting small farms and small business out of business? Uh, And who took the taste out of milk anyway? With me here today to talk about that is Ann Mendelson. Anne is a freelance writer and editor specializing in culinary subjects. She is considered, well, we say considered, she is a leading authority on the history of cookbooks. Anne has contributed to such publications as the Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink and the essay on uh, Gastropolis, Food and Drink in New York City. She was, for many years, a contributing editor to the beloved Gourmet magazine, and has written for so many publications, and now you can find her writing pretty regularly on Zester as well, our on, the online magazine. So keeping up with the ages. Anne is the author of Stand Facing the Stove, the biography of the authors of The Joy of Cooking. And in, the, in 2001, she held a fellowship at the Dorothy and Lewis Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library, working on the study of food history. And she's also won the Sophie Coe Prize in Food History at the Oxford Symposium on Food Cookery. And most recently, she received a, a grant from the Guggenheim Foundation on the study of how global Chinese diaspora is influencing Chinese food in America. In 2008, Anne published a book 
of the topic of which we're going to talk about today, milk, the surprising story of milk through the ages. And it is my pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Ann Mendelson. Welcome, Ann. Thank you, Linda. Well, tell me, all right, so, you know, we're always told that milk is nature's perfect food. First of all, let's let's dispose of that one. Tell me, tell me what you think about that. Um, milk is nature's perfect food. Milk from where? Milk from what? Milk, milk from whom? <laughs> from whom? Uh, milk for what? Milk for whom? Um, cow's milk is what people uh, usually mean, and cow's milk is nature's perfect food for calves, <laughs> newborn calves. Um, nature sort of gets shoved out of the picture uh, more and more um, over the ages. Nature started getting shoved out of the picture the minute somebody had the idea of grabbing an animal, yanking on a teat, um, and seeing if they could get some milk from it, a sheep probably, or a goat. Must have been, they uh, had to have been pretty brave and pretty hungry, right? They must have been pretty brave or pretty crazy, I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, and, we're t- and we're talking about there's, there's evidence in history going back quite a ways, right? Probably... Probably somebody got this idea like around 7,000, 9,000 B.C., mm-hmm. and probably in the Middle East, probably somewhere around the Caucasus or the, the mountains of southern Iran or Iraq. Um, but to get back to this nature business, um, there, is, there are a few unique things about milk. Um, it is the only secretion of mammals that is intended directly for food. Um, And it is intended to be supplied in one particular way, that way alone. That is a closed system between the mother's breast or udder or whatever and the newborn infant's mouth. Under those circumstances, milk is quite sterile, usually, uh, quite safe to drink, even if it's raw. (laughs) Um, But if you divert it, if you interrupt that closed system, um, milk itself is a very fragile substance, very changeable. It starts changing the instant you divert it into the outside world. Uh, You've already kind of interrupted nature there the minute you do that. Well, you know, it's interesting because throughout history, we have glorified milk, as you mentioned in, in your book, that we've glorified milk and we've demonized milk. Some days, you know, it's like anything else, salt, butter, eggs. You know, one minute someone says it's good for you, the next minute they say, oh, it's not good for you. I've, I've recently heard that um, pediatricians are recommending, well, absolutely, by the age of two when, when in, children are taking in solid foods that for parents not to be giving the children so much milk you know every time a baby would cry you say well give them a bottle of milk throw a bottle of milk in the crib with them they'll go to sleep you know and no this is not the cause for obesity in childhood i'm sure but you know being used as a substitute for more nutritious food i think that is a good recommendation to be careful that you don't just use milk as a as a substitution Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, I think part of the history of milk, part of the recent history of milk, and recent means like maybe in the last 200 years, 
uh, the blink of an eye, of course, in <laughs> historical terms. Um, part of the history of milk is that around the turn of the 19th century, um, there started to be a lot of nutritional hype about milk. Uh, that it was not just a food, but somehow the food for children. And we've never quite got over that. Um, I I don't know whether to use the word brainwashing or Mm. whether um, hype is a better word. Um, But in any case, um, this idea that milk somehow stands in a special place apart from other foods, um, it's... It's a myth. It's a delusion. Um, Milk, aside from mother's milk being fed to that mother's infant, uh, milk isn't the food. It's a food. Um, It can be good or bad, uh, indifferent, um, like other foods. Um, It had a kind of distorted importance thrust on it, and that distorted importance is what makes people so... um, so quick to take extreme positions. Oh, my God, raw milk is the only form of Mm -hmm. milk people should be consuming. Oh, it's a deadly poison. Nobody should ever consume raw milk. But what those two parties have in common is this idea that milk itself um, has a special exalted importance um, in children's diets and to some extent in adult Adult diets. Adult diets, mm-hmm. Well, and and as you, one thing that I, when your book first came out that surprised me is that it's not, it is quite the storybook and the history um, of of milk, and we'll get into more of the, how it brings us through the industrialization of the process. But what I think a lot of people would be surprised at, it's also a cookbook, very much a cookbook. Yes. <laughs> and this is, and I bring that up because you are saying, well, it's not the perfect food, and drinking milk was meant for the animal from the babies of the animal from which it comes. But that milk, people forget milk is a wonderful ingredient for cooking. And you give some terrific examples in the book, I must say. Um, and I think that more and more people are uh, now there's been a craze of you know making your own yogurt. Well, it has been for a long time, but mm-hmm. but even more recently, there's always another wave of it. You know, about making your own yogurts and uh, and uh, just creams and well, let's talk about milk and what the substance of milk before it hits the factories, the machineries, the processing plants. Milk, tell us, milk is is when it comes out in its in its raw form. Uh, well, when the milk, we're, we're usually talking about cow's milk when we say milk, uh, when it comes out of the cow, um, it's a very, very complicated substance. I'm not sure there is any more complicated food in nature, chemically complicated. And the food scientists have not even begun to finish analyzing all of its intricacies. Um, it... It's composed of basically three, uh, well, let's say four main components. Uh, Water, most of it is water. Mm -hmm. Um, There is milk fat or butter fat. Um, That's one of the chief sources of calories for the the newborn infant. Um, There are several forms of protein, but uh, probably the one that matters most 
to most people, um, is casein, which is the part that uh, coagulates into a curd and is the basis of all um, all cheese making. Jeez, yes. And um, there are other um, uh, there are other vitamins. There's vitamins, minerals. Uh, the calcium is mostly bound up in the casein, but uh, not entirely. Um, phosphorus, um, various micronutrients. And it's, uh, it really is a magical ingredient for cooking because all of these different things uh, are affected differently by different conditions, uh, such as heat, uh, such as exposure to the air. Uh, when I say heat, I'm thinking both of uh, the heat of cooking and of um, warm temperatures um, in the, the parts of the world where milking first emerged. It is hot there during the milking season. So uh, these being um, uh, Turkey... The, the, yeah, the, Turkey, Iran, Iran. And Egypt, right around there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, for anyone who's never seen or, or, or tasted or been exposed to unhomogenized milk, uh, these elements you just talked about are easily recognizable if they were to to see it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. If you got some unhomogenized milk and let it sit uh, for, it could be hours, it could be a day, it sort of depends on the milk, it separates into layers. And the top layer um, is the cream, uh, which, which has most of the butter fat. In those old bottles of milk, that plug oh, in yes. there that we people mm-hmm. fight over, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or else you just stir it back into the milk and shake it up. And <laughs> so yes, um, when I said that milk starts changing the instant it gets diverted out of that uh, that closed system, uh, the mother's nipple and the infant's mouth, um, the minute you take it into the outside world. It starts changing, and that separation is one of the changes. Um, the most important other change is that it attracts the local bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come uh, just flocking like um, flies to honey, <laughs> and they invade the milk. Um, they can be good bacteria, they can be harmful, um, but there are tribes of them that are... Um, They're pretty universally distributed um, in the ambient air all around the world. Tribes of them that feed on lactose. Mm -hmm. They change the lactose, the the milk sugar, um, into lactic acid. And as they do this, um, they change the whole flavor of the milk um, to this this lovely sour flavor. Uh, they make it thick and it partly coagulates, um, and you end up with something like yogurt um, or buttermilk, mm-hmm. cultured buttermilk. Mm-hmm. And this, these are tastes that are difficult for some people to get accustomed to or to get over. You know, if they've been brought up with just you know, plain homogenized milk. Even people who are brought up on on one percent milk have a hard time drinking whole milk, which is interesting. Um, but the flavor, talking about flavors, milk, as you say, when they when the back exposed to bacteria, it takes on a different flavor, a more of a soured flavor. And milk from different animals has different flavor as well. 
very much so, um, because um, the soul of the flavor really is in the fat, the milk fat. Mm. Um, and every animal's milk has a different profile, as the chemists say, um, of certain fatty acids uh, that impart different flavors to the milk. And that gets imprinted on the infant. That's how the infant recognizes uh, the taste of the milk of its own species. Huh. Um, a goat, a goat's milk doesn't taste like um, a camel's milk, uh, um, cow's milk, human milk, dolphin milk, rhinoceros milk. Um, <laughs> if it's a mammal, it gives milk. Um, and if it gives milk, the milk has a special profile um, above all in um, the composition of the fatty acids uh, that makes the infant recognize it. Well, we are going to, and then and yet humans <laughs> consume so many types. Well, of course, the as you call them, the big three that won out, right? Mm-hmm. And the big three being the cows, obviously. Uh, the cows, I would say the big four. Okay. Um, cows. If you were in India, you would include water buffaloes. Mm-hmm. And um, they are tremendously important uh, milk animals in in many parts of the world, but especially India. Uh, and sheep, um, the problem with sheep is that the, they give lovely milk. They give wonderful, rich, concentrated milk, but they give very little of it. Uh, whereas goats, which are um, about the same size or maybe even smaller, they give a lot more milk, uh, less rich, less concentrated. Um, in in areas where uh, sheep and goats were the first domesticated animals, people usually milked them together so that the, um, the goat's milk gave more volume, mm. um, but the sheep's milk, that small amount of sheep's milk, uh, just made the whole thing richer and more intense. Interesting. So they just, they mixed it all they together. They pulled them, yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to find out a little bit more about our modern milk processes when we come back after this short break. Taste of the Past. I'm speaking with Ann Mendelson about milk. What is that? The commercial, I don't know, got milk? Uh, got milk. Got milk, nature's perfect food or whatever. <laughs> well, there is, of course, this kind of political raging ba- battle going on in, in not only in America, other countries too, about um, raw milk 
and uh, versus pasteurized milk and organic milk versus conventional uh, milk. What is you know in some in states not allowing it um, the you know the FDA not allowing raw milk and and people trying to get uh, bills passed so that we can buy raw milk we can import raw cheeses raw milk cheeses. What are your thoughts on on that? The whole process of uh, I mean the whole political battle with the raw milk wars. Well, um, you want my real thought. Yeah, my frank opinion. This is this is here. You have folks live on the air. Anne's real thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On the one hand, you have uh, the raw milk proponents. Um, on the other hand, you have the guardians of public health um, waging bitter war against raw milk. I say a plague on both their houses. I don't know which side um, does more to justify the insults hurled at it by the other side so you're not you're not voting on either side um i think it's a mistake to consider the issue in terms of sides it's what what are the questions here um the 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 facts don't exactly um support anybody in a dogmatic assertion that um only raw milk is good for you. No, only pasteurized milk is good for you. Okay. Um, instead of choosing sides, I wish people would look at facts that kind of um, may go into gray areas. Okay. And but cheeses, we know, I mean, the che- wonderful cheeses are made from the raw milk products. And um, so far, so good um, for many. Well, um Nothing about milk is simple, and I keep repeating that uh, it's infinitely changeable. The minute it gets diverted into the outside world, it starts changing. Um, And anything you do to it affects its chemistry. Um, It's just a very, very delicate, changeable substance. Um, Applying heat to it changes its chemistry. Indeed. Um, And... Leave it sitting around, and it will be invaded by bacteria, that is, raw milk. Um, Both, uh, I hate to just say good and bad, um, but useful bacteria that that, um, change it into yogurt, um, sour milk, buttermilk, um, and also um, harmful bacteria. Now, there's a certain protective effect that the lactic acid bacteria have. Um, if, the, um, if you leave milk sitting around, raw milk, um, and it gets colonized thoroughly enough by lactic acid bacteria, uh, the pH goes down. In other words, the acidity mm-hmm. goes up. And that presents a certain barrier um, to some harmful, some harmful bacteria. It's not that it's a foolproof um, uh, precaution, but there there is some truth to this idea um, that raw milk, um, that the bacteria in raw milk um, can protect against the. the Certain bacteria can protect against the pathogens. There is some truth to it, but it's not an absolute um, 
foolproof truth. Um, there are plenty of milkborne diseases, mm. um, and there is no sure way of um, no one hundred percent certain way of making sure um, that pathogens are never going to be born in raw milk. Mm-hmm. Well, t- why don't you give us a little uh, primer on to, to walk us through the whole the history of of pasteurization and homogenization of of milk um, offered to the masses? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think that there was a very decisive moment uh, long before pasteurization came along, um, around the turn of the the, um, 19th century, uh, when the medical authorities um, started exalting milk, cow's milk, fresh, unsoured cow's milk, that is, um, to a position of great importance and saying it was very important for all children um, after they were weaned um, to be fed a great deal of fresh, unsoured cow's milk. Now, this is, without refrigeration, um, getting fresh, unsoured cow's milk uh, to people in cities, especially, um, you sort of have to stand on your head and um, <laughs> do contortions because it's the nature of the substance itself to go sour. Um, a certain prejudice arose that sour milk, uh, well, it was spoiled. Or what was the difference between sour milk and spoiled milk? Hmm. Um, the only really pure milk um, was fresh and unsoured. We, we still have not gotten rid of that prejudice. Um, late in the 19th century, um, cities were getting bigger and bigger. Farms were getting farther and farther from cities. Um, city populations were where the kids were mm-hmm. uh, sort of concentrated, uh, who were supposed to be consuming all this milk. Um, there were some um, truly awful uh, horror stories um, about unscrupulous dairyists in cities um, herding cows into sheds, um, feeding them on the swill from distilleries um, under filthy conditions. Um, the milk being fed to the, the general public, uh, including kids, um, and a lot of milk-borne diseases resulting. Um, the, the solution arrived um, starting in about the 1880s, uh, when people started applying Pasteur's Experiment, experimental work um, with wine. Um, That's right. And Louis beer. Pasteur came yeah. along, right? Yep. Uh, he never did any um, work on pasteurizing milk, uh, but other people took the the whole idea uh, that had been proved to work in other contexts, um, and they figured out ways of subjecting milk to a certain degree of heat for a certain length of time. Uh, this combination of heat and time is the so-called thermal death time that's necessary um, to knock um, bacteria out of commission. Um, the, the whole flora of milk um, 
get destroyed um, by this method, the pathogens and the other, um, the, the lactic acid bacteria. Um, and if you then promptly refrigerate the milk, just chill it to a fairly well, um, and seal it in sterile containers, um, and keep it cold, um, you have something that is going to be safe uh, for um, for people to drink, and that will not be sour. It will not curdle uh, mm-hmm. until until other things <laughs> until happen. Until its expiration it. date. Yes, right. <laughs> until you until you open the bottle and pour it out, and then you know it can be invaded by anything. Um, but a great push um, was um, great push was in, inaugurated uh, for pasteurized milk or for I should back up a bit uh, there was another movement afoot at the same time certified raw milk pasteurization and certification uh, were these two competing ideologies or approaches um, pasteurization I've described um, certification um, meant having regular inspections of dairy herds um, and the facilities where the milking went on um, and uh, where the milk was filled um, into sterile containers without pasteurization. Uh, this is raw milk that had been inspected, it had been uh, examined under microscopes uh, to be sure it didn't have tuber- tuberculosis um, or other bacilli in it. Um, trouble was this was very, very expensive to produce. Imagine, ima- to yeah, imagine the controls that would have to be put yes. in place. Right. Um, it became eventually just um, so impractical uh, compared to pasteurization that it more or less fell into um, oh, total, almost total neglect. Um, a few uh, raw milk diehards um, hung on through the early part of the century, 20th century, while the industry was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more dependent um, on highly mechanized um, processing uh, with pasteurization built into the whole processing. So what was ha- so the, you had described earlier that the farms were further and further from the city. So these farms, in order to get the milk to the people, they would, of course, sell them to the big processing companies, the, the pasteurization companies, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And that, well, that, became, um, that became an issue in itself, right? Well, milk production is very, very expensive. Um, trying to... Trying to produce affordable milk um, to feed the masses is no cinch, um, and it's gotten more and more difficult uh, through the generations uh, since about 1900. Uh, farms have gotten more consolidated, larger. Um, the farmers, um, Unless you're unless you're a super farm with maybe fifteen thousand cows, um, and everything mechanized to a fairly well and very low labor costs, um, unless you're on that scale, 
It's almost a losing battle uh, to make a living producing milk. All right. So then we saw the small dairy farms disappear. Yes. Closing down. Right. Yes. So a few of them now are springing back up again with this, you know, with with the with the raw milk craze. I guess you call it craze or well, desire for raw milk. But a few of them are springing up to supply cheesemakers. Exactly, because you, um, re, you reheat the milk and then that's it. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, no more cheese. And uh, yogurt makers. There's mm-hmm. starting to be some very good sort of boutique yogurt makers. Um, the thing about raw milk sales is that it's one of the few ways for farmers to sell directly to consumers uh, without a host of middlemen. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the few ways um, that a dairy farmer can charge enough for the milk uh, to make a living. Uh, And the the process of pasteurization being so cost prohibitive... uh Small farm, some some smaller farmers can get together with a smaller mm-hmm. organization, I guess, a smaller pasteurization company, and are able well, to produce their milk. No, um, there are different forms of pasteurization, and it can be done on a small scale. As it is, right? Um, it is done. Yes, yeah. um, there are small dairy farms uh, that do their own pasteurizing. And they don't use the same method uh, that was developed in, like, the 1920s or so, uh, the so-called high-temperature, short-time pasteurization Mm -hmm. method, um, which it it doesn't result in exactly the same same qualities in the pasteurized milk. Um, the older kind of pasteurization, you heated the milk to something like 145 degrees for 30 minutes. Mm. And I forget the um, the figure for the HTST, high temperature, short time. It's more like 161 uh, degrees for, two se- for 15 seconds. Mm. Uh, it's much cheaper to have these continuous feed uh, pasteurization systems where uh, the milk is co- constantly circulating through um, big systems of uh, pipes and valves and shunts um, than it is to pump it into a tank and hold it there um, at this certain temperature, 145 degrees, um, for half an hour. Um, Pumping the milk in and out of the tank um, into other or out of other holding tanks that's expensive um, compared to the system where um, the milk is always circulating in huge um, volume throughout the system um, and ending up being directly pumped into the bottles mm-hmm. or the well bottles are almost obsolete oh, yeah, right. um, the uh, the cartons. The cartons. Right. But these other, these small um, dairy outfits uh, that do the lower temperature pasteurization, mm-hmm. they do exist. Yes, um, they do. And most of them do not um, homogenize the milk. They don't, um, they don't get rid of that cream layer. Right, right. And it is, and it, I don't, and it does taste better, to me, at least. I, to I, me I feel also. that. Yeah, I feel that it is, is retained something. And you can, if you search around, um, in wherever your local cities are that have more gourmet markets um, here in New York City, we're fortunate we can find mm-hmm. some of these 
these smaller produced milk products around a lot. But you search around, you can find it. And and they do come in bottles, and then you get to take the yes. bottles back, and, yeah. they, and they reuse their bottles. Mm-hmm. They re-sterilize their bottles. So it's sort of like everything comes around again. And I'm sure in... Uh, Another hundred years will be. This will all be, you know, blown out too, and they'll demonize this process <laughs> uh-huh. in some way. But um, it certainly is a wonderful product for the recipe, and you have wonderful recipes in there for everything from cakes and and main courses, and of course cheeses, cheese spreads, and cheeses. But cheese is a whole other topic, mm-hmm. and. Um, our listeners can actually hear you talking with one of our other hosts. Ann Sachs will be on Cutting the Curd a couple, of, maybe a year and a half ago, and you did a nice show on cheese with her on that one. A couple. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, I thank you so much for just bringing us, I think so many people are confused about what what the whole raw milk thing is and where we came from and how did, you know, how did we start dealing with milk in the first place. And you have really shed some light on the whole milk process, and I thank you very much. And as always, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past, and I'm Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.